So beginning in Acts 25, 23. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa, and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him, but I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore I have brought him before you all, and especially you, before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to be unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you're familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king." Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Um, As most of you are already fully aware, I I am a Philly sports fan, have been most of my life. Uh, And like any Philly fan, uh, disappointment has become a way of life. And I've become more cynical as the years have gone by. I follow sports actually less and less now. I think in some ways moving to Allentown and entering the ministry has partially freed me of my sports idolatries. However, I I still indulge in radio. Uh, Honestly, our radio announcers for most of our teams are are better than our TV announcers. Uh, But I also indulge in the guilty pleasure of sports talk radio. I may have mentioned this before. I think me and Joe Michener share some of this sickness. Um, it's somewhere beneath smoking cigars, but above, like, cocaine, I think, in the range of bad habits that I have, um, or could have, you know. Uh, and, and Philly Sports Radio contains a range of extreme opinions, you know. Raging fury, as Paul, how uh, he describes his former feelings about the church, like, there's a lot of that on radio. Uh, and everyone's generally crazy that calls in, and most of the hosts as well. Uh, But one of my favorite guys to listen to is Ray Diddinger, because he's the voice of reason. Uh, He's a sports writer specializing in football and the Eagles specifically, and one of the only intelligent men to appear on any of the programs. 
He is a true expert, and I heard his voice this week talking about something, analyzing what promises to be a mediocre year at best for the Eagles. Uh, but as I was listening, I was reminiscing about the good old days of 2017 to 18, which was the Eagles Super Bowl run, which was one of the happiest events of my life as a fan and really as a human, I think. Um, again, ranking things, it's kind of like, you know, your wedding day, Eagles Super Bowl, birth of your children. It's something like that. And um, I remember that year, and I thought of it because I remember listening every single week to the morning shows at work so that I could hear if Ray came on as a guest, uh, he would give his prediction. And he predicted that we would win both of our playoff games. He didn't guarantee it, but he thought we had a good chance of pulling it off, and, and we did. It was a close call in a couple of them, in the first one, I should say. But when it came to the Super Bowl, he sat down on the morning show that week and went through all the stats, all the challenges that the Eagles were going to face. And it was a depressing list. And the stats were not in our favor, and you started to realize as you listened to him just how unlikely it is that you're going to beat the Patriots. There's no logical reasons why the Eagles should win that game. And it sounded very much like Ray was, in a typical way, trying to soften the blow. But at the end, against all the evidence, he predicted an Eagles win. He couldn't really justify it. And I don't think he did it just to please the audience, although it certainly did. But somehow, Ray saw something that gave him hope. And that hope was kind of infectious. And it spread through the whole city, even though it seemed illogical. And I remember many other national sports commentators reading them, and they were very dismissive of Ray, because they, res they respect Ray, but Ray's prediction is crazy, and they said he was playing to the home crowd. They said he was letting his emotions get carried away, that he was insincere. People were surprised that such a smart, level-headed guy could have such an outlandish hope. He has to be crazy. His hope was offensive to a serious analyst. Now, that's a pretty trivial event in the grand scheme of things, and I realize that. I also realize even as I say those words, I don't really feel them. I'm just saying them because I feel like that's appropriate. But there's something about hope that takes people by surprise. And it's offensive, even. Especially when that hope defies logic or the science or any of a dozen other things we're told to respect and submit to in our day and age. Uh, it's seen as irrational. And... Paul's speech before Agrippa and Festus is a classic case in point. Paul is going to be making a case, and we're going to see this in the next few weeks here. He's making a case for hope. And this will utterly baffle his listeners, as it always has. He finally, he's getting to make this grand speech. He didn't deliver last time, and it's a long enough one. I'm going to break it down into three sections over three weeks. And as I see it, Paul's presentation has three focal points. First, he talks about the enemies of hope. And then he shows how the gospel hope changed him. And then he makes a very direct appeal to his listeners to embrace that same hope. So today we, we begin with this picture of, that Paul gives us of a, of a life apart from, and in fact hostile to, the hope of the gospel. Uh, so Paul finally gets this chance. He's going to preach the gospel before this crowd. It's a crowd that includes Herod Agrippa, uh, his sister slash wife, situation with Bernice, uh, all the military commanders, every prominent man in Caesarea, so we're talking about businessmen and local politicians and wealthy citizens and that kind of thing. And so Agrippa and Bernice walk in, we're told, with great pomp, 
Reverend Green's been asking, asking me all week who was Great Pump. <laughs> Stupid joke. It sounds like a Star Wars character, though. But the point is, is that it's, it's a big deal. It's a festive occasion. It's a grand event. It's something formal. This is, this is, the, this is the cocktail party class of Caesarea. And this is his second chance, again, uh, after the first hearing, kind of got bogged down in political wrangling and debates uh, and ended with his appeal to Caesar. But again, the purpose of this new hearing is not really to decide Paul's fate. They already, that already happened at the previous hearing, so this isn't going to change his legal status. The purpose here is to give Agrippa a chance to hear Paul and to give Festus something to write to Nero. So Paul is given carte blanche. Basically, look, you could say whatever you want to say. He, he was given a very polite introduction by Festus, the governor himself. Uh, Festus has made clear to the whole room, like, look, he's accused of a lot of things, but whatever Paul might be, he is not a dangerous criminal. He's done nothing deserving death. Festus just said this publicly. He says, look, he's on his way to Caesar by his own request. This is his final audience. And then Festus yields the floor to Agrippa, his honored guest, And Agrippa turns it over to Paul, says, So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. Pausing a moment. I think it's interesting how this invitation gets worded here. Um, Agrippa, he, he gives Paul permission to speak for himself. I think that's interesting because... There's still this assumption on all the parties that are watching this whole thing that that this is all about Paul, Uh, that it's about his guilt or innocence or or his ideas or uh, or thoughts and opinions. Uh, But the purpose of evangelism, I think we understand this, it's not to speak for ourselves, right? We are, are the, the purpose is explicitly to carry the message of God. It's not about us. Now, the fact that Agrippa words it that way. That's not going to change Paul's approach at all. I just found it interesting because I think Agrippa's viewpoint is actually the universal viewpoint of unbelievers in the world when it comes to Christians sharing the gospel. Uh, When you share the gospel, no matter how you do it, you can be very winsome about it, but unbelievers will take it as a personal thing, as a message from you. And that's why people will often respond to gospel thoughts and, and, and messages by saying, well, that's just your opinion. Or that's true for you. Or some of them, if they're less hostile and, and thinking more you know, uh, politely about it, they'll say, I think it's beautiful that you believe that. Or that it works for you. Good for you. How nice for you. But whatever you do, you're not supposed to claim that you're speaking God's truth that applies beyond yourself. God's truth to you. How can you speak for God? Honestly, you shouldn't even be speaking about your private faith unless you've been invited to. Faith is a very personal thing, especially in the eyes of unbelieving Westerners. So the world is happy for us to speak for ourselves most of the time if they're going to listen at all. They just don't like us implying that we're speaking God's truth, and that's when they get offended. Speak for yourself, they say. So likewise, Agrippa believes he is here to listen to Paul. Uh, Paul has some interesting insights and ideas. So speak for yourself, Paul. But it's also interesting that that Luke says Paul began to make a defense. Uh, Now, I've already said this is not a judicial hearing, so that seems like a strange way to word things. He's not supposed to be making a personal defense of his behavior, and in fact, he's actually going to end up doing the exact opposite. Paul kind of throws himself under the bus at the end of this passage today, and yet 
it says he is making a defense. He even says that's how he, how he opens as well. And the word there is apologeto, which is where we get the word apologetics. Uh, and it's a word that literally translates to explain away. Uh, now, that's not how we would use it in the English language sense of making excuses. The point is that an apology in this context is an explanation. The point is that he's explaining it. He's not here to defend himself. He's here to explain what got him into hot water, i.e., the gospel. It's the same sense that he used the word several chapters back, actually, when he was addressing the Jews in front of the barracks in Jerusalem. So Paul stretches out his hand, right? It's a very Roman gesture. It's to draw attention to yourself as the speaker. Italians love hand gestures, so it's a very Roman thing. If you see a lot of statues of Roman emperors, they will be in that very pose, right? And then Paul begins by addressing the new guy in the room. He says, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. It's kind of funny. Paul sounds almost excited to talk to Agrippa, doesn't he? It seems kind of counterintuitive, given what we've been saying about Agrippa since last week, right? He's not a particularly upstanding guy. He's not a very good Jew. Uh, he's a scandalous character, even by Roman standards. And yet Paul says he's fortunate to be talking to him. In what world do we ever consider ourselves fortunate to talk to scandalous people? Most of us are not tabloid reporters, so I would venture to say most of us are not into this whole thing. But Paul acts as though he's relieved to see Agrippa here. Now, why would that be? I mean, we'll get some hints as we go through the passage throughout the entire speech in coming weeks. But Paul indicates here that this is one guy who will easily see through all the smears. Because even if he's not a good Jew... Agrippa is at least familiar with Jewish customs, and Agrippa has been around. His entire family history is wrapped up in the historical events surrounding the life of Jesus of Nazareth, not in a good way for the most part. But Paul seems to think that if anyone will be able to see through all the noise, it'll be Agrippa, because frankly, he knows just how argumentative the Judeans can be. This Herod in particular, having grown up in Rome, can see the situation from a different angle. He is Jewish enough to know the local politics, but he's Roman enough not to be swept up in it, if that makes any sense. It's kind of like watching soccer as an American. I mean, I get it. I get that the idea is to put the ball in the net on the other side, right? I just don't care because it's not my sport. You know, I'm not emotionally invested in the whole thing. And similarly, Agrippa understands the locals, but he's not that emotionally invested in the debates. So Paul says he's eager to talk to Agrippa. He sounds almost relieved that this guy is here. But listen to how he starts his defense. He says, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, which they're not, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Now, I want you to notice here how he leaves some ambiguous wiggle room a little bit. He says that from birth, the beginning, he has lived among his own nation and in Jerusalem. Now, we know that Paul wasn't born in Jerusalem, right? Where's he from? He's, he's a Cilician, a Cilician Jew. He, he grew up in Tarsus, right, up in Turkey. So you can't be sure what he means in this passage when he says, my own nation, he could be referring to Rome, he could be referring to Cilicia, or he could be referring to the Jewish nation. 
he seems like he's being intentionally ambiguous a little bit there, and I think he does it with a purpose. I think he's establishing a common thread between himself and Agrippa, who has a similarly ambiguous background with a foot in both worlds. So Paul is showing, look, we have some stuff in common. But more importantly, Paul wants to say, he says, look, my life is an open book. There are no mysteries here. Christians are not a secret society or a club or anything like that. Everyone knows me, and they know that I've been a Pharisee since my youth. And this is a good display of honesty on his part, because Agrippa is from a family of Sadducees. But Paul knows these terms will make sense to Agrippa, whereas Festus couldn't really care less and doesn't know what's going on, right? So by saying, look, I'm a lifelong Pharisee, he is painting a picture for Agrippa of his background and his childhood. And Agrippa will know that being a Pharisee means Paul was raised in a conservative Jewish home that believes not just the Torah, but also the prophets, and that they accept this idea of the resurrection. And it's that one point, Paul says, is what got him into trouble. He says, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? That little chunk of three verses is kind of the heart of Paul's opening argument and really the entire argument. And so I want to spend some time there. I I want you to say, first off, in spite of what Paul says, how he's going to answer all the accusations of the Jews, in fact, he does not do that. (laughs) He does not address all the accusations. Uh, He doesn't bother with dignifying the unfair and untrue attacks against him. He homes in on the one true thing, the heart of the issue, the part that Festus had found and focused on, and that's this idea of the resurrection. And just as a starting point, I, I would say that in and of itself, that's a very practical thing for us. Speaking God's truth in, in this day and age will spark a lot of negative reactions. And I think we often make the mistake of playing defense in the wrong way. Uh, we make a defense of ourselves instead of explaining God's truth as, as Paul's going to do. And then I see so many arguments about faith. I, I've been in them in, in person, but you see them a lot online as well, where, where Christians are reduced to sort of defending the church and her track record or something as opposed to explaining the hope of the gospel. I've seen this a lot. But Paul makes an amazing statement here that he's on trial for hope. Hope is what he's accused of. Hope is his crime. That sure seems like a weird thing to be in trouble for, uh, especially because in principle, Paul is not saying anything different than any other Pharisee, right? They all claim to believe in the resurrection, right? And yet he says his hope in that is why he's in trouble. Why does hope offend people? That's the question Paul boils this down to. He is on trial. I am being sent to the emperor of Rome because of hope. Why is hope so offensive? The gospel is good news, amen? That's what what it means. So nothing about the gospel is bad news, right? At least it's not any worse news than was already true, right? We, we already know that, that life is short. We, we know that we're all sinners and we know we're all going to die. That's evident to anybody with eyes in their head. So you would think that the gospel message is a net positive, right? It's, it's good news. So why is it so offensive to people when we say that Jesus is alive? 
Why is the hope and promise of the resurrection such a point of division? Why does the hope offend people? It's a question worth wrestling with. Um, I think a lot of unbelievers may not openly oppose the idea of the resurrection, but if you believe it in actual fact, and in fact you're even putting your hope in it, they may not attack you, but they will hold you in contempt. They're not going to take you seriously. They will label you a nut. Because only fundamentalists really believe all this stuff that's in the Bible. That, that's, that's fringe and kooky stuff. You know, Stick with the life principles of Jesus, the, the what would Jesus do elements, right? Why start talking about all this resurrection, miracle stuff? Unbelievers think the resurrection is silly. How does Paul word it elsewhere in a similar vein? Foolishness to the Greeks, to the Jews, a scandal. So Paul is not in trouble for affirming the resurrection as a broad, vague principle. That wasn't the problem, because again, the Pharisees are the only group who should be in agreement with Paul on that particular point, yet they're also the reason why he's in jail. Something doesn't add up here. What has Paul got that the, other, that the Pharisees, all the other Pharisees, don't have? What does he have that they don't? He's got hope. The resurrection means something to him. And I think that's why Paul specifies that he's on trial for his hope, not his doctrine. Why is this hope so offensive? I think it's partly because his hope is so certain. Paul believes the resurrection already started, right? With, with Jesus walking out of the tomb on Sunday after Passover 25 years ago, right? That's the first big difference between Paul and his fellow Pharisees. It's not the resurrection per se, but the resurrection specifically of Jesus and the hope that it brings to Paul and every other disciple of Christ. Hope like that is offensive to people. Certainty is offensive to people. We don't typically use hope in its biblical sense, do we? Hope seems to be different the way it gets used by Paul than the way we typically use it. I use the phrase, I hope, specifically when I am doubtful of an outcome, right? I hope the Eagles win the Super Bowl. Do I really think they will? Who in their right mind? Especially not this year. I hope my taxes don't go up this year. I hope the puppies don't poop all over the house while we're at church. We use hope as something we wish for against the odds, right? That sort of hope is not typically all that offensive, really. If I say, like, uh, for instance, I hope my red car holds out for another year, that's not going to upset anybody, even though it's rather unlikely, right? It's just a foolish hope. It's not necessarily offensive. But if I use hope in the biblical sense, speaking of a past action, the resurrection of Christ, and a future certainty, the resurrection of me, which changes my life in the present... That kind of weirds people out. Certainty is not celebrated by our culture today for the same reason that seeing the world in black and white and about anything is tantamount to a form of bigotry to many people today. Because even when people aren't offended by the gospel as a general idea, they hate when people are so sure about it. It's also offensive because this is a very public hope. Paul keeps announcing 
this hope. And polite society keeps hope private. It doesn't impose their hopes on everyone else, but the gospel is not a private hope, so Paul's out there advertising it. I think that's offensive to people. I think people also hate that hope is so ill-defined and cynical in a lot of other contexts, and then they end up applying it to the Bible and to what the, the gospel has to say. I'm sure most of you are old enough to remember the, the 2008 election. President Obama, when he was campaigning for president, famously featured posters in his advertising, and it was his face, uh, and it just said simply, hope. And I remember thinking, what is that supposed to mean? Uh, is he hope? Does he give hope? Hope for what? And, and he's not alone. Hope is a popular word with advertisers. It's a good word to use, but it can feel ultimately kind of cynical and meaningless, right? But I think probably worst of all, and maybe this is really the key to the whole thing, is that people resent hope in others, and especially when we don't share it. When someone is legitimately confident that some good thing is going to happen and you do not share that confidence, your disagreement with them can quickly turn into contempt. Hope is most irritating when you don't have it, and others do. We despise optimism in other people. I know I do. Optimism is annoying especially if we've already become jaded. If you've never seen the Lego movie, and you really should, that is an instant classic, uh, there is a character in that movie, the ever-positive Princess Unikitty, so named because she is unicorn and kitty at the same time. And when they go to visit her land, she announces to them, there are no rules. There's no government, no babysitters, no bedtimes, no frowny faces, no bushy mustaches, and no negativity of any kind. At which point the other character says, uh, you just said the word no like a thousand times. <laughs> and she says, and there's also no consistency. And she says, any idea is a good idea except the non-happy ones. Those we push down deep inside where you'll never, ever, ever, ever find them. It's hilarious. And is it any mystery why they call the place where she lives is called Cloud Cuckoo Land? It's nutty. It's ridiculous. Some of you maybe uh, young folks are fans of SpongeBob. SpongeBob is modeled on the same kind of ridiculous, optimistic idiocy, Right? But these characters are funny because it's annoying. We all understand how annoying it is. It's like Ernie and Bert, same principle, right? Ernie constantly waking Bert up and giving him a hard time. It's funny because he's annoying. Mr. Happy-go-lucky. And in that context, hope comes across as artificial and contrived, especially if you don't share it. Hope like that is not credible to us. But Paul says... Nobody should think this idea of God raising the dead is incredible. And yet it is incredible to many. And they can't be content to let others have hope. They feel the need to squash it. Now, as I reflected on that a little deeper, it kind of started to hit me hard because I am, some of you know this, I, I'm by nature a pessimist. 
and I say this in spite of my, my Christian faith, I have days when I throw my hands up and wonder how God can, can possibly redeem some difficult situation. And I've had other times in life where I see great possibilities on the horizon, but even when that happens, I, I tend to immediately assume that my hopes are going to be dashed because that's happened so many times before, and I just assume that God's dangling the carrot and he'll take it away. And sometimes something bad will happen, and I tend to jump to the conclusion that God is punishing me for something. And other times I've had in my life where a string of good things will happen to me, and everything's going really well for maybe, maybe several days, maybe a week. And I'll find myself at the end of it, I'm actually kind of depressed, because I suspect that God is setting me up for disappointment. As if he's just toying with me. Do you kind of hear what I'm saying here? Does it sound like I'm a hopeful guy? My theology says God can raise the dead. But in practice, I don't even believe God is going to redeem a hard conversation I had this week. See the incongruity here? And that kind of darkness, I think, has a tendency to spread. Occasionally, uh, one of my younger girls will express a naive hope in something. This happens quite frequently. Maybe we can do this one day. We can go to Europe or whatever. Some, some outlandish idea, you know, like as a family, we can go do this. And I'll say, yeah, that's not going to happen, sweetheart. <laughs> and then she'll say... But maybe, and, and she fills in the blank with yet another more obscure possibility that maybe it could work out. And that's when I double down and I swat those naive hopes down like it's my job. And she'll keep it up. And sometimes, I'll ultimately, I'll get irritated and sometimes I snap. That's not a pretty picture. Now, why does her hope offend me? because I don't share it. I can't wrap my head around it. And maybe her hopes are unrealistic, but it's not any crazier than the resurrection, is it? I believe the resurrection in theory, but in practice, it's not a hope I'm very good at clinging to or leaning on. If I'm honest, it doesn't exactly fuel me through the week a lot of times. And if I can't be hopeful, I come to hate hope even when I see it in others. So that I too can become an enemy of hope. And God help me, I'm saying this as your pastor. And I think that maybe that's the biggest point that Paul is making because ultimately he says, I've been there too. As he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul says, I was an enemy of hope, just like you guys. 
it's almost like he's answering his own question. He's asking, why is hope so offensive? Why are people surprised that God can raise the dead? Well, it's for the same reason that he hated it before. Paul hated that they had a hope that he didn't. Paul's confessing to crimes more serious than anything he's actually been on trial for. I I locked up people unjustly. I, I handed out death sentences. I had people punished and beaten. And perhaps worst of all is that he says he tried to get them to blaspheme the name of Jesus. That doesn't get you any closer to justice or even a a, a true punishment. But what he's saying is he didn't just try to break the church physically. He wanted to break her spiritually and to squash her hope. He wanted to make them despair the same way he was despairing. Before his conversion, Paul was a declared enemy of hope. And now he asks his listeners, why is this hope so surprising to you? C.S. Lewis wrote an autobiographical account of how he came to faith, and he titled it Surprised by Joy. It's a neat story. If you've never read it, I have it in the library downstairs. You're free to borrow it. But the basic idea is he spent his entire life pursuing joy without knowing even what it was, and ultimately he was surprised that he found it in God, a God that he never wanted, but who was ultimately the source of the joy that he was looking for. True joy such as can only be found in Christ, is shocking. And so is the hope of the resurrection. Unbelief is always surprised by hope. It was modeled in this way for me. I had a friend in in college who I debated spiritual issues with, and he once claimed he believed he could accept that God existed, and he could even allow that God created everything. And I made a comment about, well, it says this in the scripture. He says, well, I don't believe a word of that. I asked why, and he said he didn't believe a God that big would bother talking to us like that. That's not a rational position, is it? But we weren't arguing about whether God could, in theory, speak to his creatures. This was not an argument about doctrine. We were arguing about whether my hope was credible. And he found my hope offensive because he didn't share it. And that's how unbelief really feels. If my hope was just vague and theoretical and esoteric and private, maybe, then there wouldn't have been an argument. Everybody loves positive thinking, right? But they don't like certainty, and they don't like the belief that God speaks in his word or that Jesus actually was raised on your behalf. In the eyes of the world, this hope was not only foolish, it's offensive. Why? Because it's harmful, because it promises too much. It promises that Jesus was only the beginning. In a nutshell, the gospel's too good to be true. And so the world feels the need to squash it. They become enemies of hope. Now in closing, I just want to say, brothers and sisters, that I submit that this is probably the default position for many of us as well, at least functionally. I was raised in the church. I have the privilege of coming up here and preaching the gospel to you guys every week. But no one in my family would accuse me of having too much hope. Let's just say I would not likely end up on trial on such a charge. Maybe some of you feel the same way. Maybe for some of you, the hope of the gospel is more theoretical than practical. And maybe that's why you have a hard time knowing how to share it with your neighbors, because it's hard to fake hope. People see through that. And how about us as a church? Is LVPC 
known for our remarkable hope? Do we ooze the energy and optimism that comes from the gospel of hope? Does our culture overflow with it? Of all the things that LVPC, if a casual visitor walked in here, of all the things that might offend them, is hope high on that list? I suspect not, and I say this because I know that I'm part of the problem. And yet, resurrection hope is not a gift given to those who wish hard enough for it, and it's not a reward for your devotion and your loyalty and your steadfastness. The hope of the resurrection is ours in Christ because he is faithful, and the hope is certain because he already finished the work. We don't need to earn it. Biblical hope is not hallmark hope. It's not just a happy word that you hang on the wall next to the live, laugh, love poster. (laughs) Resurrection hope is already ours whether we feel it in a given moment or not. And so, beloved, let's act like it. Let's be guilty of the charge of excessive hope so that we can share it with people who hate it, like Paul did. Let's pray. Father, your word says you're the God of hope. And Lord, hope in your word is not some vague or shadowy thing. It's not something that we, we wish on a star about. It's not a feeling. Lord, it's a certainty, but we do not, I don't think we live like that. I don't think we think like that, Lord. I think we are bogged down in the world's way of thinking. Lord, will you teach us to hope? Lord, that we would overflow with hope, Lord, that people would see the hope in us, Lord, that it would be infectious, Lord, and if need be, even offensive. Lord, may we be credibly charged with having excessive hope. Lord, we thank you that your mercy extends to us even when we don't feel like that and don't live like these things are true. Help us to live in that assurance as well. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for the resurrection. And we thank you most of all for your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.